So yeah, before I start this little timer that I've got going, I'll just introduce. This is Dojo Talks. We try to do this once a week. Sometimes Kostya Kavutsky is on with us. Sometimes we have a guest. Today it's just me and I am David Proust. And we are today tackling uh, a potpourri, a menagerie of topics that I've thrown together. Yeah. Um, and we're going to try to do 10 minutes on each. And, um, you know, if we go a little over, that's all right. We will try to address any questions in the chat. And um, David, why don't you introduce number one? I think of all the topics that we have going on, this is the most technically and legally complicated. Okay. Well, I don't know if there's been an update on the Wang House situation in the last few days. I was researching it again last night, not, not even just for the show, just out of interest, because um, I'm quite interested in this. So I was looking, I didn't find any new in, um, information since, you know, the article came out, like, you know, Wang Hao's like, you know, arguing with them that it shouldn't be held, that the candidates shouldn't be restarted in Russia right now, that Russia is not a safe place to be or to travel or to go, that there'd be connecting flights that I don't know. I don't know exactly what his list of like complaints against Russia is, but, um, you know, I played it in, I played in Russia once, Jesse, and I, uh -huh. <laughs> I would also not want to go play in Russia. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm missing some updates on it, but um, but apparently, um, you know, he was in an argument with um, with the the lawyers at FIDE, and then um, he was discussing with the lawyers what the options were, or something like that, complaining about what they were doing, and then Dvorkovich sent him an email which he described as rude. Um, I don't know how much debate there would be on that. I would also describe it as rude, but we can we can argue later if that's a point of contention. Um, and so it's unclear if Wang Hao is going to continue or not in the candidates. That's that's the latest I've heard. Is there more recent uh, than that, Jesse? Well, I think it's very complicated. I think there's a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't. I think as far as what you said, everything you just said makes sense. And now. I was the one, by the way, I'm responsible for writing these ridiculous topics out. And the reason I wrote Wang Hao Rajabov in the candidates is to me, the issues are a little bit or very much interrelated. I because agree. Because Rajabov decided, you know, I wouldn't even say he necessarily dropped out, but he put no. his he put his participation in doubt. Yeah, And then I guess it was mostly Arkady, this guy, who I find is a very hard guy for me to understand. I think it's very complicated because he is so closely connected to Putin that it's like, oh man, this is really weird. Other people I know, you know, who are not Russian players do not have this same kind of reservation with this guy. Like, I don't think Nigel Short or a lot of these other guys, Emil Sutovsky, who work within FIDE, have a, think it's problematic. They've never voiced it being problematic that he's so close to Putin. Anyways, you got this guy at the top, and he has made several pretty draconian decisions, and... Mm -hmm. In his defense, I think you could say if he hadn't made the draconian decisions, like it, it would be hard to organize the event. So I think what's going to happen with Wang Hao is he either is going to have to toe the line or they're going to push him out in the same way that they pushed Rajabov out. And in a way, like unless they bring Rajabov back, which I doubt they're going to do, I'm going to say 95% chance that's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're going to... They're going to also have to proceed, I think, in a very uncompromising manner with Wang Hao as well. I would, I would guess, Jesse, that that this guy Dvorkovich is the kind of guy who's never said "I'm sorry" in his life, who's never apologized and said, "You know what? I was wrong about something." Um. So yeah, you know, letting Rajabov back in, which of course they should do um they should restart the whole event with rajabov but um but letting him back in i would be shocked i would be shocked yeah to see I, them change their stripes i think honestly okay so two things on that first i totally agree with you and i think it's a thing about post-soviet power struggles where showing weakness is a really 
big deal. And that's right. why for them, like to, you know, go back, I both go back on what you said and to even open the door for compromise is right. something they're just not going to do. Right. Um, but like, let's, let's put it this way. Was it a mistake for them to start the candidates when they did? That's oh. pretty, pretty obviously. Yes. Right. Like since they weren't able to complete it and like, you know, it was predictable to anyone with, you know, moderate <laughs> insight. So it's obvious that they were wrong to start it when they did, but they're never going to say like, oh, we made a mistake. Well, on that point they about it, say, now that we know we can see it's a mistake. No, 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 never. On the point of it being obvious, I want to say that it's not entirely obvious to me in the sense that um, the virus situation is as far as I can tell, basically the same now as it was then. The same, the science hasn't evolved that much. The the rate of infection hasn't in, changed that much. So we're basically at the same situation. Mm -hmm. We've come to a culture of face masks since then, but honestly, that isn't to me any kind of game changer in how you deal with stuff. Um, so in any, in any case, like as a chess fan, I was. I was happy that they did it, and I'm happy that it's happening again, especially when I consider that it might be another half year or even more until this virus situation even goes away. Right, but I mean, they could have just restarted it online. They've got no reason to make the players travel. And also, I mean, they should include Rajabov and Wang Hao. And like in general, like the organizers should listen to the players um, to some extent, right, instead of just being rude to them. I think it's really interesting, the idea of it being online. I don't think people would, myself included, would have a hard time accepting it as, you know, the candidate's match if it was just online. It would be hard for me to do. Um, I mean, it's also hard to accept it if they're just like kicking out players at random. <laughs> well, right. And, you know, another moving part in this that I think has to be mentioned is it's not clear to me that it's just going to be Wang Hao who has a problem. I can imagine uh, people like Fabi also having trouble getting both into Russia and out of Russia, coming mm -hmm. back. You know, uh, for example, we have both you and I have a mutual friend who's uh, wanted who came here from France and hasn't been able to go back, right? And that kind of yeah. stuff is like, well, it that really complicates the matter about can these people come in and what kind of negotiations happen and you know there i think i think it's a very complicated thing and for example when we say maybe the event should be restarted maybe but you know that would be unfair to the people currently in the lead of the third of it right yeah. to, to nepo for example hugely unfair to him yeah yeah, and but I mean, honestly, the injustice to Rajabov, like, you know, predates and is greater than any injustice to anyone after. Mm. So, I mean, for sure, the event should restart with Rajabov. If we we're talking about what should happen, um, the event should restart from round zero with Rajabov in it. Um, and you know, anything after that is all just errors built upon errors. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's going to be errors upon errors. Um, and let me just make a, a fun, uh, well, to me, a very interesting note. I have, I, I don't enjoy most sports, but one of the things I've noticed is that the sports events I've um, enjoyed most have been conducted via authoritarian and corrupt organizations. <laughs> I think in particular of of FIDE doing these world championship matches through the years. I mean, the FIDE has been historically corrupt all my lifetime. You sure. know, the, and your favorite sport to watch is chess. So that's, I guess in, that's definitional. It, it, no, but in particular, the world championship match mm -hmm. matches. And it, aside from the ridiculousness that they put on in uh, that, that knockout thing in the 90s, which I don't recognize as the world championship title, the other things are, you know, they've been very interesting matches. And they're just... By a comparison, I want to say the FIFA World Cup, also an incredibly corrupt organization, one of my favorite events to watch as a fan. <laughs> so I have to like, there's something 
I don't know. That's interesting about that. I don't know if it means anything that there are all these corrupt organizations. Obviously corrupt, too. And I enjoy the sports events magnificently in them. But in any case, right, this event going forward, it is going to have this draconian authoritarian thing, and there is always going to be a cloud on it, no matter what. And it wouldn't surprise me if it falls apart in the next month. Because if Wang Hao goes, if Fabi has a problem, Mitch is saying in the chat that, right, we're banned to going to Russia. Obviously, maybe Putin finds something and lets him in, you know, lets him out. Sure. You know, yeah. there's all kinds of ways it could happen. But that in or itself, that in itself is a negotiation. And his seconds, are they going to let him in? And that kind of question, you know. Oh, definitely a good idea to, at the last moment, not let his seconds in. <laughs> a great move for Nepo, I think. <laughs> okay. I'm not so, saying that Nepo would want that kind of move. You know, I'm just saying like, right. That'd be a classic power move for, for the Russian politicians. Okay. Let's move on. Topic number two. We could right. talk, we could have talked forever about that, obviously, but yeah. this is why we give ourselves only 10 minutes. All right, here we go. Um, I, as a fan, I'll just begin this one. David will fill mm -hmm. this out more than I can. But as a fan, the Armageddon format currently being used in Norway, uh, I haven't even watched those Armageddon games. They're not interesting to me um, at all. Um, and so, no, I'm not into it. But honestly, I, as a fan, also this Norway chess thing as, a, as an event, beautiful. Really been enjoying it. You know, the fighting chess and the games both yesterday and today with Magnus and Fabi, beautiful games, beautiful games. Mm -hmm. So the event itself, even though I don't like the Armageddon format, I don't feel like the Armageddon format has detracted from uh, the event itself. Because you, you can just ignore it. Yeah, it's like a sideshow, you know? It's kind of like, sometimes I feel they do little sideshows where, you know, they take the players off to some cooking competition or they make, you know, they play soccer on the side. That's cool. <laughs> you can do that. It doesn't bother me, <laughs> you know, but it's yeah. not the actual competition for me as a I, fan. I would have gladly watched the bake-off that they did on the rest right. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to you... The Armageddon format is pointless, but you can happily ignore it so it doesn't ruin anything for you. So far, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it slightly bothers me just the way like random stupid things out there in the world slightly bother me, even mm. if there's no reason they should, right? Like, you know, if I hear that somebody in, in, in D.C. is wearing a winter coat in summer... Uh-huh. You know, uh, obviously it has no effect on me yet. It just makes some part of my brain like wrinkle up like why people uh -huh. why. Yeah. So um so it does that to me because I mean not too badly because I think it's good to try out different formats. Um you may not be a fan of that idea, but that could be a larger discussion another day maybe, but like I think it's great to try out some different formats and then be willing to just like reject those that, you know, are not that good and, and try out others. But I really, really prefer the idea of you just turn the board around and keep the time you have on the clock. And I think it'd be much more interesting to try something like that if they want to sort of have like a follow-up decisive game. Or if it's going to be an Armageddon game, maybe like, you know, play like at least like a rapid game, like 30 or 40 minutes or something like that. But like a blitz game, it's so random on the same day. It, it doesn't add anything to me. It's completely disconnected from the previous game. Um, last year, the Armageddon game was scored as being worth like a point, and this year, a half a point, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so this this year, if you draw your game, but then uh, win the Armageddon, I think you get one and a half. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to get this wrong or something. Right. Um, but I think now you get one and a half compared to the player who won their classical game getting three. So even winning the Armageddon game, you're only in the same sort of relative standing as if you'd drawn, period, right? But if you draw and lose the Armageddon game, you're falling even further behind. The point scores may matter a little bit if they start influencing how the players play. That's the only reason I wonder about this, right, Jesse? It's like, oh, okay. like 
if a draw is getting you like one point versus a win three, basically, right? Or in this yeah. case, on average, 1.25, depending on how good you think you are at rapid, mm-hmm. right? It might put a little extra pressure to play for a win, kind of like just using soccer scoring as some random tournaments have done, which I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, I don't, I don't love tournaments with 90% draw rates, but I don't think the answer to it is uh, soccer scoring. Um, but anyway, uh, not to get into 500 topics. But last year, I think that if you won the game after drawing the Armageddon, you could get two points out of three, which is then like better than just drawing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may have even been two and a half, but it was something like, it was two or two and a half. So if you're really good at rapid chess, um, like, you know, Magnus in his world championship matches with Karyakin or like Karawana, there's like a certain strategy at some point where you just draw your classical games in order to win the Armageddon games and you're racking up enough points, you know, to, to win the tournament. Right. Um, kind of like drawing out, but like drawing out on steroids, right? Because you're actually <laughs> like doing better than anybody else who's drawing. Um, or people who are winning are catching up slower. So in that sense, I think it's slightly bad to have this like blitz game that's like messing with the standings. I mean, ideally, the players are just kind of like playing their classical games normally and not worrying about it, just like you. Uh-huh. And then you choose to like log off when it's time for the Blitz game and they just like, you know, switch modes, right? And go from like classical Carlson to Blitz Carlson, but he's not really linking the stuff too much. Right. And the classical games are still of good quality, which I think so far has been the case. But to me, an experiment like this just runs the risk of like the stupid Blitz games messing with how people approach the play, which I don't which I don't like. And so, although I like trying lots of different things, I've seen like 10 proposals that I like better than this. So, Well, right. And actually where this discussion leads into the world championship discussion is precisely this thing you're talking about of an incentive to go to the rapid came up basically in both, well, not basically, but definitely came up in the last two world championship matches um, where Carlson basically desired willed it he willed it to the rapids and knew he was going to win there and yeah. that's exactly what happened um a ballsy decision because it could have actually i felt it could have gone either way especially when the final game with caruana when he had such a nice position he was like no nah, i'm just going to take this to the rapids i mean he had like an overwhelmingly nice position <laughs> he had a really game. nice and, position and I thought, yeah to me that's the tragedy to not see that game played out Right? right that's one right. of the reasons i hate that whole rapid thing it's like any format where carlson doesn't try to win that position like it just doesn't make sense you've obviously like ruined the classical chess it's not just that you've tacked something else on right mm-hmm. but you've ruined the classical because like i can't think of any normal tournament classical reason scenario where you don't win that game as as black or at least try <laughs> i mean so yeah that. Well, then, let me ask you a question, David. So um, people should know in the dojo that David was one of the first to really come out very strongly in terms of not allowing people to agree to draws. And there's been a whole evolution in the chess culture that actually I want to do a video on at some point about how we've evolved to really what David's position is. Because back in the day, people would just agree to draws all the time. Um, and so I want to ask you, though, David, as a fan... How much does it hurt you when the draws are agreed? Not necessarily early, but just like in general. And yeah, what what do you want them to do? I mean, you know that I'm not such a like, you know, crude person that I can't appreciate a well-played and fully played draw, right? Right, so, right. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not just like some random lunatic, like, you know, who just learned about chess and is mad that people are drawing and have no idea why. Um, how much does it hurt me when people agree to a draw? I mean, it depends on like the reasons for it and how much of the game has been played out. Right. But like the Carlson Caruana game that hurt me a lot. I wanted to see that game. Yeah. 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 No, that one, right? that so, one was also just weird. It was bad for chess because it was just weird. You know, it was like, what, what are you doing? That one hurt me at every level, you know, um, yeah. some other draw. I mean, it's, it's kind of specific you know, case by case, I guess. But, but but you want them to, if they agree to a draw, to turn the board around. 
I mean, I, that, that's one really cool proposal that incorporate that that incorporates the idea of like if the game's a draw, you kind of keep playing till you've got like a winner for the day, and the game can still count as like a classical draw for ratings and standings and whatever. But if you want to have some kind of thing where like everyone gets to see some blood that day because you're tired of like you you think that the fans aren't going to be enticed by a tournament where sometimes like all four games are a draw that day or all five games and. Norway, it's only three games or whatever, right? Like if you're afraid of that and you want to try and provide some more forced excitement, then one really one really superior example, in my opinion, is you just flip the board around and start playing again. And you use the time that you have left. So that's a way of sort of like counting it down. But I mean, the amazing thing about that, if I understand the way it would work properly, is yeah. when you then offer your opponent a draw, you aren't offering a draw you're offering to switch positions that's what you're doing right well no you restart with opposite colors you start a new game with opposite colors oh i see i see you know what i mean see. so like yeah. our game peters out to a draw it's not like it's not like my king rook and pawn versus your king rook and pawn if we switch the yeah. board like you're gonna somehow try and beat me and then if you can't then we'll switch it again and i'll keep trying to beat you with that one pawn you know uh -huh. Um, we reset the pieces. So if it took you like an hour and a half of thought time to get a draw against me, and it only took me an hour to get a draw against you, then I got like time odds in that second game, right? Or if, right. or another way of thinking about it is if you can't beat me with white, then you have to face me with black right after or whatever, you know? But maybe the guy who had like, you know, who had black used more time. So now they've got white and less time because they had to defend last time. It's It's a way of sort of like, in a sense, continuing the battle, right? Um, using the slight, you know, transferring maybe a plus equal into the next game. Right. You know, based on the pressure <laughs> that you put on your opponent or something. Okay, let's move on to this next amazing, it's, you know, in a way, this is a little bit less of a debate. A lot of these questions we do here are a debate. This one is just a very bizarre chess story that happened. Mm -hmm this last week and I should just introduce it a little bit. Um, I played with Igor Rousey's in the Bundesliga uh, for the great team Fienheim. We were in the second um, tier of the Bundesliga beginning around 1996 and then we made it after a year of struggle to the, two years of struggle into the first Bundesliga was his huge achievement and Igor Rousey's was our first board and it was a god it was a really interesting time for me and honestly I don't think if I didn't have that experience playing in the Bundesliga uh oh I have to start the clock sorry <laughs> if I didn't have that experience in the Bundesliga I'm I don't know if I would have become a GM. It wasn't, it was, and it was because the Bundesliga was so well organized and, and it had what I would call chess culture. And there was like a camaraderie too in the team. <clears throat> in any case, Igor was there and he was usually our first board. And then we had this great guy named uh, Sokolov who was number two and they were both around low 2500s at the time and this of course which, is, which sokolov Ivan or andre there, there, it was an andre but or there's a, let me just tell you there's a lot of andres and you know honestly <laughs> like you go to the chess space and my andre sokolov is like listed as andre sokolov three or something like that oh. because there's so many of them <laughs> i haven't had contact with him unfortunately for years in any or or igor you know and this is of course this was right at the beginning where computers there was no cell phones, of course. It was just like computers, um, you know, were accessible for, you know, mortals. And you could, you know, it was the first days where you had some opening and you could check your opening on the computer. Um, anyway, so we traveled to these cities and it was, a, you know, we played like, especially when we got to the first Bundesliga, We, I, I got to play Vagania and I got to play all kinds of uh, beautiful Nizzy Pianu, I got to play loads of big names there. Um, and we were like the team basically that had no money. And Igor would come in and I'm pretty sure all that our club was paying him was just like to fly in. We paying maybe as, a, as expenses to fly in and then he was like crashing on people's couches while he was there and he got a visa for he, the time. What does he get from it then? Well, you know, he got to travel around a little bit. He got a, the, the, the travel visa, and he would go around these other tournaments. He was very poor, but he wasn't like um, 
a resentful kind of poor. There's a kind of poverty that you can become resentful, but I never resent, remember him as being resentful of being poor. Uh -huh. um, the other thing I should say about him is that he learned chess very late, like 17 or 18. And it, so it's very astonishing what he was able to do in just in becoming a GM. Um, and then, of course, you know, I came back to the States late 1999 so i had no contact with him or the club after that really but the you know he came back on the radar of course years and years later and one of the the first thing i gotta stress about this and i've seen this in other cases with cheating is the people who are cheating are not the people you would expect. They're not the like murderous thug people out there. They're actually like Igor Rousey's. That guy was a very gentle soul. I mean, that guy. But, but hang on for a second. Yeah. Name a top chess player mm -hmm. or, or a chess player. Yeah. Who you think of as being that other category, the murderous thug type, and then tell me that they don't cheat. Like, who would you expect to cheat but doesn't? Who's who's the thug type? Because I think of chess players as generally not really being that many, like, thugs, honestly. There were a lot of guys uh, traveling. Well, I'll just, I, I don't want, by, by not naming anybody, I want to say there were a lot of Russian guys hanging out in the United States post-Soviet Union that were pretty thuggish. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think they were probably okay, and their thuggishness, I think, was mostly related to the fact that they were in a foreign culture that they didn't really adapt to, and they didn't know the language that well, and mm -hmm. they were willing to do, I feel like, yeah, they were, it, they were in mildly desperate circumstances, and that led them to do things that were dirty in fact this was pre-computer but yeah they were dirty and they they would arrange games and they would um you know throw games and that whole thing and right i don't want to name names but that was yeah definitely the people okay. that i think of as thuggish in the chess world yeah so you're not saying that those people didn't cheat you're saying that other people also cheat who you wouldn't think of is that, is that well well right and and very enough. innocent gentle people yeah. Um, okay. like uh, with, again, without naming names, it was a kid we right. both knew at the mechanics and, uh, that kid was the gentlest little kid I've ever seen. And then he was busted, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I guess I want to say as well about the phenomenon with Rousey's is it, it's an interesting, okay, let's let just back it up. <laughs> the guy, this is, I don't know, bury the lead here. The guy goes to this tournament, and he goes under an assumed name, and he actually changed the name on, like, his ID and stuff. Right. He didn't just make it up. He actually got, like, a name change. Yeah. A new ID. And then, you know, he's wearing, for the most part, a face mask at this tournament, though I did see photos from the tournament, and not everyone's wearing a face mask, which is kind of amazing just within the American context to think about yeah. anyway, because everyone here is so militant about the face mask. But anyways... There he was, kind of halfway covered anyway, covered bo both within the face mask and with the new identity. Mm -hmm. And um, right, th so this was, we were talking with our tours uh, doing the uh, business just yesterday. Yeah. And while we were talking, we were doing the Ultimate Sensei. And while we were talking, it came to my, someone put it in the chat and I was like, what, you know? And then I went and looked and it, it was the very same Arturs and he was the one who discovered him, Arturs Nikesons, and he discovered him and it was particularly hard for the guy, because, for Arturs, because like this tournament was a celebration really of his old coach. And mm -hmm. so it was like this whole, yeah. Really an amazing story. Anyways, what I want to stress before I hand it over, and I realize I've talked too long, is to me what was interesting is that when you hand out a ban to not play, and by the way, the guy would have been able to play in this event in terms of FIDE because this was not a FIDE event. So that's an interesting distinction in itself. So he wasn't technically banned from this event that our tours was at, but you know the tournament organizer basically told him to leave anyway. Mm -hmm. Anyways, what am I trying to say? That when you ban somebody a, a, who is a chess player to their very soul, you are putting on, what this shows is you are putting on some, he how heavy it is 
when you do it. If you did it to somebody who didn't care about chess, well, then it probably doesn't matter too much. But yeah, this is obviously a major burden to Igor's soul if he's doing all this just to play a couple games. Right, right. Like if somebody's not really a chess player, right? If they just like pick up the game right. and they play for like half a year and they're like, you know, 800 or something, and then they figure out that they can computer cheat and they, you know, win a few tournaments, you know, and then they get caught and kicked out. That person doesn't really have an investment in chess. It's not in their soul. They just move on to trying to find some other scam in another field. But if somebody has actually put in the time and work to become a master, and then at some point they juice. They juice, that's right. <laughs> they, they still do love chess, even though they just took a giant bathroom break on chess. Right. Um, so that person will really feel the punishment. It'll really hurt them if they can't play. Right. You yeah. know, and I think too, you got to, I think one of the things about a guy like Igor's is he was traveling around Europe, poor as uh, unimaginably poor. And so by juicing, I don't think he, I don't think he ever made a lot of money, but I'm, he, I'm sure he made a little bit, you know, when you're like 2660, if you're playing at the 2660 level, um, obviously he wasn't playing at that level. He was cheating to get to that level. But at that level, I think you win, you do win a couple events and you get, um, some honoraria for playing Bundesliga and other leagues, which he was doing, you know, even before, uh, he, his rating rise as it were right yeah um hard times he i don't think he wasn't i don't this is part of the interesting question he's saying uh, i don't understand why he wasn't allowed to play uh i think it was ultimately the tournament director's discretion that he told right. him to leave and perhaps he didn't have to leave but then out of shame i think he did Right. That's my understanding. And I mean, like other players are complaining about it. So the tournament director has to make a choice of balancing the needs of different people, right? As right. as often yeah. the case, right? Mm -hmm. So the tournament director has to decide, like, who who do I want here, right? You're running any business. Like, you know, I'm running my chess club and there are some people playing in my chess club. This is in the past, right? It's not now. I don't have a chess club. But, you know, if I'm running my chess club and there are some people who are playing over here, and they're making a lot of noise and there's some people playing over here and they want it quiet and they complain about each other. Like I have to figure out how to balance it. And, you know, ultimately in some case who has to, to stay or who has to leave if they can't live with each other. Right. So if you've got um, several, if you've got several people complaining that there's an event to, you know, memorialize somebody who's very important in their lives and it's a spiritual event for them as mm -hmm. Jesse will definitely agree right on um, you know if you're there worshiping your first sensei and then there's some cheater there who to you is you know a chess heathen yeah and you don't want him defiling it then i can understand i mean Artur's told us that he was really upset about it and he was really upset just recounting it to us mm -hmm. so at that's right point, the tournament director has to decide who does he who does he want more or less at his event and this director made the decision, which you guys can agree or disagree with, but I agree with. Right, right, right. <laughs> he made a decision, you know, like he'd rather have our tours and a few other people um, feel comfortable there. And maybe lots of people would have, would have had the same complaint if everybody realized who was there. Um, he'd rather make them feel comfortable and ask the cheater to leave than say like, well, sorry, guys, like, you know, there's no rule. He can't be here. Okay, I could talk about this all day. Let's move on. And I apologize mildly here for my poor phrasing of this one. I wrote it down as the role of FIDE, mostly because I wasn't. There's so much to talk about in terms of FIDE, but let me just clarify. FIDE, man, corrupt organization that it is doing the world championship business, now has uh, potentially a new role to fill, and that is the arbiter of the cheating claims. Mm. And it's a really weird thing because to a certain extent, I'm not clear that FIDE should have those auspices. In particular, in the latest cheating event, we had the question of chess.com banning people. 
Or we could imagine Lee Chess banning people. And those are separate bans that really have nothing to do with FIDE. Now, I did make a video since then talking about mm -hmm. my own perspective on how to stop online cheaters. But um, the question remains, and the, regardless of whatever um, suggestion you want to take up for stopping cheating, that the arbiter of last resort, I think, has to be resolved. And honestly, I don't trust FIDE at all to, not just because they're corrupt, but because they would have to make a very determined stand on this issue. And right. I think it has to be soon. Like we need to come to some agreement now about not only like what the ban would be or what the penalties would be, but also like how is it determined? At the moment, for example, chess.com has an algorithm, but it's not public. So I don't know. I don't see how that can legally be binding if it's not in some way public. But I'll throw it over to you, Dave. Right. Yeah, I mean, this sheds new light on our question last week. Actually, it's a good perspective because last week when we were talking about chess.com handling cheating, some people were like, who is chess.com to make this decision? But we never asked the question, if not chess.com, then who, right? Right. And this question brings that up. If there's nobody more qualified than chess.com to make that, then it's like, it's like when somebody says this move is bad and I say, well, what move was better than it? And they can't yeah. find a better move, right? Right, right, right. And it means you've got a bad position, not a bad move, right? So that would mean like maybe there may be whatever pros and cons to chess.com banning people and it having a big effect on their careers. But if you don't have a better suggestion, then that's just how it is along with all its pros and cons, right? So the major alternative, I guess, to chess.com would be FIDE. Another alternative could be national federations. Um, another alternative could maybe be some kind of like international commission on chess cheating that's separate and independent from FIDE. Because if it's just a committee that FIDE set up with other people who are already on other FIDE committees, that's not really any different, right? So you, those are kind of like the options that we look at. So today let's consider the option of like FIDE as mm -hmm. being the, the group that decides cheating. And immediately my first thought once you offer this option is like, yeah, they don't seem like much more qualified than chess.com or anybody else to do this. Right. I understand they're sort of like the obvious person. Like they're like, they're the person who's sitting in the driving seat when you get to the car and you're like, hmm, none of us have driver's licenses and none of us slept last night and we're all drunk. So who should drive? And you're like, well, that guy's sitting in the, in the driving seat. <laughs> right. Maybe it's him, but nobody's like, you know, that guy would make a great driver. And a historical example, I think, that b both you and I were affected by, that I think is a little bit parallel to this, is, you know, the U.S. Chess Federation was in charge of the U.S. Championships for years, and they bungled it just again and again and again. Yeah. They weren't able to do get the money straight. They weren't able to stop the cheating either. And it was right. ultimately to their lack of ability to stop the cheating that they lost their main sponsor of the U.S. Championship and how it eventually then got signed over. And when I say it, I mean the U.S. Championship, how the U.S. Championship just got signed over in terms of responsibility to the St. Louis Chess Club. Right. And it was this epic move where basically you could say the U.S. Champion, US Chess Federation just lost loads of what it might be. Like at the moment... Right. I mean, you think about U.S. Chess Federation, it's basically just in charge of like the rating system, you know? Yeah. And maybe that's what FIDE should be too. But the problem, especially on an international level, is you do need some kind of legal force. And like the St. Louis Chess Club can't have that kind of legal force, nor do I imagine can chess.com have that kind of legal force on an international level. So in a way, it almost ha it has to be something like FIDE or some kind of organization that has power. It has to have power. Yeah, I mean, it could be it could come from the ACP, the Association of Chess Professionals. So I don't know what percentage of chess professionals are actually part of it. You yeah. know, if it's like if it's like ten percent, then then no. <laughs> And if it's, you know, and depends whether it's got, you know, a democratic or hierarchical structure, how good a job it'll do. 
uh, of representing what you know what the bulk of players actually actually want and believe. But you've got the same problem with Fide. I mean, you've got I mean, you just got one unqualified bozo after the next in charge of Fide, and I've got no trust in whatever they do. So I mean, they can't. I, mean, I it's not just that they make an occasional error or that uh -huh. they make errors and then don't ever realize that they made an error or that they make errors and then don't ever apologize or or recognize those errors publicly it's like literally they just get every single thing wrong i mean like you really have to look with a fine-tooth comb for something they did right um so how how would we expect them to handle cheating correctly it's uh it's pointless i think it's pointless to look to feed it actually one other interesting thing about feed and cheating that's kind of interesting to think about is uh, the case, of course, that everybody knows about is Igor Rousey's, and that guy had no political power at all. Like, he was just a, a minor GM. But yeah. when you think about this latest case with Petrosian, you had the entire Armenian uh, chess federation and society basically come to his aid, and my guess is they have bull with guys like Arkady. And... Um, you know, when you've got a powerful federation like that behind you, well, I think it would be very hard politically to to do that. Uh, oh, man. And, and I'll tell you, as far as I can tell, Petrosian and the Armenian Chess Federation, are they're like up in arms. And whether they cheated or not, you got to say, like, anybody who's accused of cheating is going to scream to the to the clouds right they scream to the gods as loud as they can because they'll realize that Igor Rousey's fate man it's not it's not so easy to deal with yeah. yeah yeah I guess the only thing I would I would say would be a good role for FIDE would be disassembling itself um and then being replaced completely by something else by other people in the meantime as far as like their role on cheating I would say nothing and the best thing I can come up with on the fly, though this is sort of an extension of the topic that you know we didn't think about before or prepare mm. for or anything, but the best thing I can come up with is like each individual like organizer and arbiter, et cetera, um, can determine what's going on at their event and they can let other people know what they think happened at their event and people can draw their conclusions from that. You know, so like chess.com is perfectly allowed to say, you know, we think somebody cheated in our tournament and St. Louis can say, you know, we think that, Wesley so cheated in his game yesterday against, uh, you know, whoever against Jeffrey Xiong. And then other people can draw what conclusions they want about that. They can trust or not trust the organizer, but that's the best it's, that's the best it's going to get. I would say. I see. So now. that's an interesting vision. That's like a pluralistic, uh, sense of accusation and defense, right? Right. So like if I'm the St. Louis organizer, right, mm -hmm. and you're Wesley So, I could tell you like you cheated yesterday, um, so you're out of this tournament, and you can't play in tournaments at our club in for the next year or whatever. I can make up anything I want for my yeah. organization, right? Someone uh -huh. else who's running tournaments might say, you know, the Charlotte the Charlotte Chess Center might say we use a three year ban, right? And I might say we use a one year ban or whatever, uh -huh. and then. Then, like, if you if someone else is running the Charlotte Chess Center, they can say, "Hmm, that guy cheated at the U.S. Championships next week. Maybe, do I want them playing in my tournament?" And they can decide, you know, whether that affects their appetite for that player at their events, um, based on what is or isn't available publicly. Huh. Okay. No, I think I think the pluralistic thing is really interesting, and we should uh, get into that at another point yeah that's honestly it wasn't even on my radar in my mind and when i did the video this last week i just kind of assumed there had to be a legal force but right with a pluralistic vision that's almost like a an anarchist dream right <laughs> you have all these different legal systems floating out there and they can apply whatever they like yeah okay let me move on and uh, i'll just introduce the new topic I'm going to put it over here. Actually, how do I do this here? Let's, um, uh-oh, I, I got rid of you. I didn't want that. <laughs> oh, where'd you go, buddy? I'm over here. Oh, man, where'd you go? Follow my voice. Oh, that was really bizarre. Um, 
I don't know what happened to you, buddy. You got you got They're lost. They're saying that the finger was more important than me. <laughs> how, how did the finger take you over, buddy? Oh. Okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to figure that out. But in the meantime, um, I'll tell you what. This So the topic is just these new opportunities in online teaching. And I have things to say about it. But I'm going to get David back. So, David, you take over for a second. I'm going to get you back. Okay. But uh, but can you tell us what the what the topic is? <laughs> that there are you new wrote these topics, and I don't know what they are. <laughs> I'm sorry. The topic is that... what are the new opportunities? Well, okay. I have. I'm going to tease something here. Okay. Um, and one of the reasons I want to talk about it is precisely this tease that I'm going to do. We might at the dojo start helping out with the U.S. Chess School. I have also been involved in the U.S. Chess School as a teacher. And um, the interesting thing with the U.S. Chess School is, first of all, for myself, I just want to say that thing is, uh, well, it's a big deal for me in that, um, how should I say it? Um, oh, God. Oh, it got, how, how, does it, how does it happen, buddy? I don't know why it what? goes away. I you go away. Oh, and... <laughs> I want to get it again. I don't know why it does that, David. You you disappear sometimes. All right. I don't know why it does it. In any case, um, the thing about it, and I'm not going to touch anything anymore. I'm just going to leave it be. I'm not going to touch anything ever again. Um, did you go to the U.S. chess school when you were a kid? How about we start with that? Nope. No, didn't but it exist yet. It didn't exist. Well, here's I mean, the Greg's, Greg's basically my contemporary or my generation, right? And he founded it, so we weren't like kids by then. Well, see, that's funny you say that. I feel like it definitely existed uh, before then. When I was a kid, uh, we got sent. It was the, you know I didn't have any coaches or anything, and mm -hmm. I got sent to New York City to study a little bit with Edmar Mednis. Oh, I did that camp too for a week. Yeah, that was coincidentally with uh, with Greg's sister. Oh yeah, there you go. Jen, Jen was there the same year as me. Well, to me, that's what I mean by it. Okay. You know, that 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 thing has, in my mind, been around forever. Okay. Um, well, I did a one week session with Edmar Mednis, kind of like a you know summer camp for some good for some good kids from around the country for a week, like eight kids maybe, probably same as you. But I don't remember there being like the same kind of like organization and seriousness as what as what Greg has with like multiple students and lessons and classes and different lecturers and mm -hmm. and all that this is a whole different level I agree it's a different level and and part of a reason I brought up the old thing is um, not only because it resonated with my own personal history is important to me but uh, it is something and and what's happened with the US chess school like a lot of other things that have evolved since COVID is there's just new opportunities in online teaching. We've had numerous camps that uh, wouldn't have happened before. Uh, they could have, you know, but they've really taken off now. And the U.S. Chess School has definitely taken off as well. For example, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night, I'm starting this Rook Endgame Boot Camp through Coaches, and that's going to be like 10 hours. And another really cool thing about that, here's an example of a new opportunity in online teaching, is, you know, like let's say the way I learned Rook Endgames, just as an example. Um, I, you know, looked at a lot of books, and a lot of times it would be like, here's a position, and then like some really, some long analysis that was kind of hard to understand without any human words, um, and then it was something presented as if, well, here, buddy, you need to learn this. You need to, you know, memorize this or, you know, somehow absorb it. Well, now, you know, what's so cool about the online opportunities is tomorrow, not only will I be able to talk about a specific position with these people in the camp, but I will have them spar in a lot of these key positions. And I think that's the, the most important one of the most important things about, say, learning a rook endgame is you have to realize it's not just like learning it in some kind of scientific sense, but you need practice and uh, a practice under strain of both an opponent and a clock of being able to figure something out uh, over the board. 
Um, so one of the reasons I put it out there is I think you and I you could even find more ways in which online teaching is uh, interesting. But to me, right away, I want to say that the things that stand out are the fact that the U.S. Chess School has now gone uh, online, and we're going to try to help them if we can. I don't know if it's going to happen yet, but we're going to try to help them stream it and then also put it out on YouTube, which I think is one of the biggest things that's just so amazing. Let me just, so let me just back up if people don't know about the U.S. Chess School, is Greg Shahad has been doing this for a long time, mostly a labor of love. He's got some people, uh, some funders have helped him get uh, teachers uh, and stuff. I've been on there, Kostya Kavutsky's been on there. Um, and through the years, it's a really remarkable thing. And actually, I did it live in person once at the San Francisco Mechanics. Um, but now it's moved online, and so now you can have 70, 80 students at a time. Um, and, you know, you, it's this whole Zoom culture thing, which I'm just getting used to, where you can allow somebody to speak, for example, and they can give their uh, view of a position. Very interesting and new thing, and that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I really think everything is evolving now with these things. There's, in addition, let's mention, uh, Augard has had a bunch of camps you can do online. Uh, Kramnik has had camps. Uh, my friend told me he did a camp with a Nand online. You know, like, wow, nice. <laughs> amazing, right? Nice. Just being able to be in the same Zoom call as a lot of these people, and... Um, yeah, be, being in the same way also with Twitch, right? The fact that you can kind of not just see a person's moves, but hear them talk about the game and their life and whatever is going on. It's a huge uh, proximity that just didn't exist not too long ago. Yeah. 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 So sounds really awesome. I, I, uh, yeah, what should I say about this topic? Well, Great I think there's some opportunities. I think you are also kind of on the front line of this. Like, you are pushing yourself in these streams you've been doing. For example, David was just doing this amazing um, thing where he was playing people blindfold online. And it can, you know, there's all kinds of things like that you've been doing that I'm honestly like, oh, right. You're like it. You're kind of exploring the limits of this new technology and the things we can do. And of course, other streamers are pushing the limits too, like finding new ways of exploring chess. And it's happening because of the new technology and just the fact too of the chess boom and the COVID times, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I've been, I've been trying to push for this for a long time, right? I mean, in 2009, I started working at chess.com and I saw, I already had in mind at that point, the potential for the internet to allow people to learn chess in new ways. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's every, every, you know, couple of days for 10 years now, you know, something new has been tried and uh, there's a lot of great, a lot of great, incredible opportunities. And you see more and more people who play chess really well. And uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what, what else you want to say about the topic or if you have a question about it, but like, I agree that it's, that it's incredible and that it's growing quickly. Well, actually, let me give you some credit here. I mean, cause I'm just thinking back on it. Let's, so let me just give everybody a little history. We were at the GM house about 2009, end of, I think it was in, end of 2009. And uh, David, like the, the chess.com, this is my memory of it. David can correct me if I'm wrong, but like the chess.com guys came up from the South Bay to meet some players and my sense of it is that you if you were especially when we think about it you know the current developments as we could think about it 10 years ago more than 10 years ago of you being a visionary in this sense that you kind of saw it before it really happened yeah i mean Sure, that's true. <laughs> because I want to say at that point, like we had, so at that point, it's just remarkable even to think about because at that point, we didn't really have video streaming at the same level that we do now, right? Like it was possible, but it was very difficult and not, and most people didn't have the capability to stream video on their device. So you could get audio streamed, 
or, or, you know, record it, but it was very difficult to get, like, say, somebody's face. And at that time, of course, it was the ICC where most people were playing. And it was very early days for that, yeah, yeah, for that sort of thing. And, you know, so just the idea already of Blitz, and I want to admit, I, yeah, even now, I, I'm always, not a reactionary, but I'm always just like, oh, is something new going to happen in, in terms of learning? It just, I see, yeah, David, I'm going to just say maybe I, I think the interesting thing is you're just like, what? Of, of course there's new stuff. What do you want me to say? And I'm like, wait a second, David, I'm just getting it now. I'm just understanding okay. now that okay. there's so, like yeah, this. So, so to that point, I mean, Kosti and I were really excited to, to start Ultimate Sensei. And you were like, really? Why? What is this thing that? Right. Maybe that no, cool? Fair. Fair point. Um, I, I didn't get Ultimate Sensei at first, you know. Okay. I'm not so even sure I get it now. Of it? Does it seem like sort of cool to you or not? I mean, you can say if not, that's, um, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I, you know, I feel like um, I was definitely, like definitely the amount of interest that we had going on was more than I thought we were going to get. And yeah, it's an interesting thing that I honestly, I still, you guys have a vision and I'm just like, you guys are dragging me as dead weight. Cause I, like, I feel like, yeah, I didn't totally get it at first. And I'm still like a lot of these things, the new technological things. I'm this old guy and I want to read books and I want to sit at my board. And I love talking about chess, but I write a lot of the new things. I'm just I, you know, it takes me a while. Plus, you know, I'm like technologically challenged. It just takes right. me a while to learn new things, uh, yeah. to, to learn how to do them. Yeah. But on that note, like sometimes my stream, Jesse, I just sit there reading a chess book and writing notes on a piece of paper on like an actual piece of paper about what I'm reading. And people just watch my face as I do it or whatever. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. And uh, Josh does that too. I think Josh read like a whole book of like Anon's games uh -huh. on stream over like whatever, you know, like bedtime stories with Anon for like two months. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. I think we could, we can continue talking about that. I, I really want to say with this, I'm happy to, I want to brainstorm more. This was mo mostly a brainstorming opportunity for me because I really feel like when I start thinking about the stuff I'm doing tomorrow and people playing each other online, like I didn't have that as a kid and that would be just, man, to me it's mind blowing and that I can set, you know, like a coach can sit there and be like, okay, you guys are gonna play this position with this time control and you're playing against that guy. Amazing to me, really amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah. now the next one, I gotta at first say, David didn't like it. <laughs> David didn't like this topic and um, I'll just, yeah. Maybe I'll, I saw I'll, Jesse's six topics for today. I had sent him six other topics yesterday, yeah. but he never got them. Yeah. So then an hour before the show, I saw Jesse's six topics. And I said, I don't know what your first five topics are because they're not questions. Uh, and the sixth topic is the only one I understand, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I take some responsibility. Um, so I'll tell you what. I'll just introduce it, and David can shoot it down. And if we decide it's so hateful of a question, we don't even have to discuss it. Yeah. Um, so I want to say, let me just put it in my own words. Um, so for years, I've been fascinated by the idea that, first of all, that the doctor people don't, I feel, have a real grip on what autism is. Uh, and that there are certain behaviors that I would describe as autistic or mildly autistic that I have, I feel like I have in myself and a lot of uh, my chess friends. Of the people we know, David, I think there's only one person that is one GM who is clinically diagnosed as autistic. And that only happened recently. Like I think 10 years ago, we knew him as being conceivably autistic, but he wasn't diagnosed as autistic. Okay. And other people, I would say, I think we would agree that they have autistic tendencies but are not diagnosed as such. And let me just say the reason I was thinking about this just came to my mind as an interesting topic was last night I watched the first episode with my wife of uh, Love on the Spectrum and I was like, mm -hmm. right, this is something amazing. And one of the things that that show, is, that that show pushed that I hadn't thought of is it pushed the idea that 10 years ago, everybody thought of 
everybody, most people, thought of autism as mainly being a male phenomenon. And that show is pushing the idea that there are actually much more female people, female persons with um, autism, but that that presents differently. And that to me is kind of a revolutionary thought of like, oh, well, I didn't, you know, <laughs> I didn't really think about that, you know. Anyways. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like many words and concepts in our society, it was originally designed by men. Okay. And they had very like gendered thinking and a lot of their diagnoses, right? So it's mm -hmm. not the only thing that is, that is gendered. I mean, you know, hysterical used to be a medical condition. Right. And right. Uh, it had to do with, you know, the Latin, I think Latin, I don't know if it's Latin or Greek, but you know, the, you know, the word for, uh, for uterus. Right. Right. It was thought that you could cure it by removing the uterus. So there's, there's a lot of concepts, um, you know, both just simply at the, at the verbal level and then even beyond it that, you know, have been designed and come up with in a gendered way by, by, by men over the years. Um, and that, uh, you know, are wrong and, and could be, I don't know, discarded or revised. Well, let's do this. Now, I, now we got to let Vishnu in here because he's very upset. <laughs> let's just let me read what he wrote. The label, i.e. autism or spectrum, can only be applied by a qualified professional be her well past that point on the dojo. So let me just ask, David, is that why the question made you uncomfortable or was it? Why did you the put question it... make me uncomfortable? Well, yeah. because I'm not really qualified to answer that question. I can't. Mm. Like to some extent, I can't, I, I can't tell you, you know, who is or isn't where on what spectrum. Uh -huh. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I have some like, you know, mildly really inexpert opinions that I'm afraid of like saying for fear mm. of being wrong. You know, I just, I generally prefer to speak about things that I know something about, or at least to make strenuously mm. clear that I have no idea what I'm saying, Uh huh. in which case, I guess I have no idea why anyone would be listening to me. Right. Um, but, uh, but my like vague thought is that, you know, like most human characteristics and qualities are on spectrums instead of being, instead of having like clear bright line divisions and you're either yeah. autistic or not autistic, you're either male or not male, you're mm. either, you know, Caucasian or black or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think all of these things are kind of like constructs designed to make it easier for people to throw people into different boxes and barrels and categorize them. Um, and so to some extent, like my first blush answer to your question would be like, yes, like all other humans, chess players are on the spectrum somewhere. Mm. Well, good. I, I think that I, my intuition is, is most a little bit in line with you. And I guess where it's the, the reason it's interesting to me is I put it this way. It's like I think there's two ways of thinking about the autism thing. One is you kind of go with Vishnu and you're like, OK, it's this box and the professionals get to decide who's in the box. Or you say, look, it's this huge thing where you can go. You can imagine a completely different end of the spectrum. And I've no, I think I, I think I know what the opposite end of the spectrum is, and I am definitely not even close to it. The opposite is this: the far end of the spectrum is a complete extrovert who's comfortable with noise and various social cues going off at the same time. They enjoy interacting with those cues, and they're very good at giving the cues themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you can imagine if you imagine that as the end of the pole and then you start moving down the line well then you realize well okay we can kind of see that everyone is somewhere on that spectrum right mm -hmm. and for right. example um i feel that i am much more uh, i have a much bigger problem with like noise really bothers me and one of the things i just wanted to get at that i think is so interesting is there is, is there something about chess players and both in terms of developing their ability and just their desire to play chess, which just doesn't mean you're like diagnosed or you're, you know, you're on wherever the doctors say you are, but are you just more over there 
than the average median person. And my intuition is yes, I'm not making some strong claim about it though, you know, but it's, yeah, I, the reason I put it out there is it's just, it's just interesting as a source of speculation, just as well, who are we, you know? And someone want, might want to say, well, leave that to the professionals. Well, okay, that's a fine answer, but I, am I not allowed to ask who I am and like what, what's going on around me and to think about how the neurology of my mind interacts with these labels and yada yada and how my neurology, frankly, like constructs my reality. As a philosopher, it's like, okay, this is just interesting. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, you know. I yeah, I, I mean, yeah. certainly, certainly you have a right to wonder about, you know, who you are and what you are and, 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 and how you compare to other people if, if you want to, right? And what, what characteristics you have in common or, or separate from other people. That's, that's fine. Um, uh, I mean, I guess one thing that, that you'll see in, in Love on the Spectrum is that a lot of the people in that show have like, you know, uh, have like a very, very strong passion for one or more things. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Which some people would sort of like describe as being kind of like obsessive about the thing that they really like. Right. Mm -hmm. so there may be some that, you know, and I don't know how much it applies to any other people on the spectrum, but like, you know, the 10 main characters in that show all have some something that they're pretty passionate about. And a lot of chess players are pretty passionate about chess. Right. So that may be why you're why you're wondering about that. Um, I'm certainly very passionate about chess, but, um, you know, and, and like you, I, I, I suffer when there's a lot of noise, mm, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know. I think also, you know, I, I, uh, I am bad with empathy. Very bad. I don't, I don't feel a lot of empathy, dude. And I do not relate to You're like, others. Why shouldn't I ask this question? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I don't like the question of um, like, yeah, others' feelings and being sensitive to a very poor. That's just historically, I know that about this part of my own self-knowledge. And so whether I label it as autistic or not, it's just interesting to think that there's a spectrum even if you don't relate it to the autism side or what you might want to call the autism side, there's these other people out there who are very gifted at reading other social, other person's social cues and uh, giving them cues in response to make them, you know, feel good to assure them. And that's an art form, right? And I don't have it. And, you know, it's just, an yeah, I feel like I'm allowed to ask the question. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So everybody, thank you for tolerating my speculations. I hope Vishnu forgives me in whatever way he needs to forgive me. Yeah. We're going to go off air for just a short bit. Then we're going to come back with Sunday night at the fights. Uh, loads of games coming up. Should be pretty fun. Any last words, David? On... Um... One person was grateful that you asked the question. Other people at least had a lot to say about it. So yeah. So I, I guess it was fine. I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that I had anything to uh, contribute. So. Okay. Uh, I'm. 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 I guess. I'd be happy to know that we finished the topic without me upsetting a lot of people. That would be my like my dream scenario here. Right. And I hope that we were more convincing on some aspects that were more our areas of expertise, such as what should the role of FIDE be, dismantling itself, you know, what do we think of the Armageddon format, pointless to slightly stupid, etc. Right. Okay, guys, we'll see you in just a touch.